0: Let's go be logical Christians. Technology is a wonderful thing. I think we can all agree on that. It's never done anything but make life better, am I right? If you're anything like me, every time you purchase that next latest bit of technological wizardry, you're skipping for joy at the money well spent. And thanks to science and government, there is only one direction technological advancement can go. No, up. On today's episode, we're going to free up that wasted time we spend with Grandma, then we'll see how dust can cost us $10 billion, and finally, we'll soon be able to travel back in time, very slowly. So start making those vacation plans, grab your feather duster, and slow down, fella. What's your hurry? Slower. Slower. Because here we eventually go. Back in 1995, you know, 27 years ago, Saturday Night Live was in one of its rare periods of goodness. They were at the tail end of a great cast, great writers. I mean, they were political and everything, but they were more evenly handed. They made fun of everything. It was just it was just a funny era. But listen, don't get me off track here. My point isn't about Saturday Night Live and how terrible it is now and how it should have been canceled a couple decades ago. Back in 1995, they did a parody commercial spot for Old Glory Insurance. They showed a bunch of old people sitting around the kitchen table talking about insurance, how the times have changed so much, and then one of them mentions the robots. Yeah, the robots are everywhere. And that's when the pitch begins. And of course, there's a video of a 1950s style, boxy, bucket-headed, two-finger clamp claw-handed robot coming into the bedroom of an elderly couple looking for their medication because, as we all know, that's, that's their fuel, old people pills. At least that's what the commercial tells us. Another one is coming for someone raking leaves. Then they throw up a pie chart showing that robots have overtaken heart disease as the leading cause of death for people over 50. The warning that when they grab you with those metal steel claws, you can't break free because they're made of metal. And robots are strong. And then the tagline. Old glory insurance for when the metal ones come for you. And they will. Well, the time is here. Only the robots aren't coming for old people. New York State is in fact placing them in the homes of old people willingly. From businessinsider.com headline. New York State officials are giving companion robots to more than 800 senior citizens to help combat loneliness. Oh. Oh, this seems like not only a great idea, but possibly the the best idea ever to combat loneliness. So the robot named LeQ really isn't a robot as such. It's more of a tabletop tablet-based assistant with a slight bit of personality just based on its design. So the tablet sits off to the right with a webcam of some sort, and the uh, the robot. And I place that word firmly between quotes is to the left. It's kind of a tall, skinny, upside-down, stainless steel, mixing bowl-looking thing on the bottom with a tall, slightly less skinny, right-side-up, white bowl-looking thing on the top. The upper part has some lights in it that can give it some, like, huge, unblinking eyes staring into your very soul. Or it can be a circle or a, or a spot or a dot, and apparently it can flash and... Do things as it talks to you. It can do pretty much everything a smartphone or a tablet can do because, because it's basically a tablet. It can alert you to reminders such as to take your pills before the other robots come and steal them for fuel or about appointments. It can tell people how to get a cab or help you get an Uber or help you get your groceries delivered. It can track your key medical information, your personal vital stats And then their little commercial says, most importantly, she can be your sidekick. I guess as long as you're next to the table that she is sitting on. She's personable and empathetic, the commercial says. She can provide entertainment and companionship. She'll play music, remember things you've told her. Oh, oh, I guarantee that she and the NSA can. And she'll tell jokes, such as... What is orange and sounds like a parrot? A carrot. I mean, if you're older, you probably just shot milk through your nose, which is odd because you haven't had milk in days. The New York State Office for the Aging, or the NY SOFA, to you and me, is working to identify 800 seniors that are more isolated to give the $1,500 robot with the $35 to $50 monthly subscription, depending on what tier of service you want, Two, So to be clear, they're putting $1.2 million worth of robots in the homes of seniors because they're lonely, especially now since the pandemic and the forced lockdowns and the business closures, the forced masking and the scare tactics of you don't want to kill grandma, do you? And the forced murder of elderly people in nursing homes, at least in New York and other places. They're, they're lonely now. LEQ has been made for older people by older people, well maybe not by, at least with their input, and has been set up with a random kind of artificial intelligence to allow it to not always act in the same way, to give it more of that personality. According to a Harvard study looking at loneliness, in the midst of the pandemic, October 2020, they found that 36% of all Americans were feeling serious loneliness. 43% of young adults reported an increase in the feeling of loneliness since the start of the pandemic. Half of these young adults surveyed said that they had nobody in the last couple weeks take more than a few minutes to sincerely ask them how they were doing. They found that 40% of Democrats reported feeling lonely as opposed to about 29% of Republicans. Further, they found that those that reported loneliness generally had a mindset ripe for loneliness. They were more critical of themselves and others. They were more likely to expect rejection, and they were more likely to have the perception that they tried harder reaching out to others than others tried to reach out to them. The reality is, and admittedly this is my opinion and And this is coming from someone that is a massive introvert. I mean, I do feel loneliness at times, but my batteries drain quickly around people and charge up when I have, you know, me time. So maybe I'm the wrong person to analyze this. Ah, but here we go. So the fact that more Democrats are lonely doesn't shock me. Democrats by nature are more emotional-driven, empathetic people. Republicans are generally more logical, sympathetic people. I would absolutely believe that those that expect rejection, that perceive they try harder in relationships, and those that are more critical of themselves and others would experience greater loneliness. That sounds like it's simply a mindset type of thing. But loneliness, no matter the demographic, is definitely on the rise. With the rise of internet-based virtual interactions, all these social media platforms, the world was set up. It was ripe for loneliness, but that could be masked, no pun intended, because social interaction was still taking place in school, church, work, the store, etc. Not to mention interaction with friends and family. Then the so-called pandemic. The warnings that we can't kill grandma, the lockdowns of nursing homes, the dystopian images of hugging relatives and what really amounts to nothing more than full-body condoms, talking to parents through a window, people dying alone in hospitals, schools shut down, businesses shut down, activities shut down. All people had to rely on was basically life through a screen. And for the older generations who either don't do that or don't do it well— or don't want to do that, they were isolated. The fear porn that our alleged leaders pumped into our heads was relentless, and it seems like most people bought it. My extended family is admittedly fairly small, but my sister, her family, my parents, my aunt, I was fortunate because none of us were interested in playing the game. Now, we had different approaches. We did different research. We had a lot of discussions, but we were not willing to stop life because of a new virus Of definitely not lab-grown Chinese origins. My kid and I take a trip every July 4th halfway across the country to my sister's place. We never miss that. We all head up north to gather for Christmas and New Year's holidays. That took place like always. So what was the difference between us and a lot of other people? Well, I mean, in part, we believe in a sovereign God. We we don't believe in cowering in fear. We're all logical, well-studied people. We don't take the alleged experts at their word. We don't let the talking heads tell us what to do. We refuse to take the word of someone we don't know and have dubious trust in, especially when all the data we were seeing was telling us the opposite. See, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of a sound mind. We used our sound mind were reasonable in our actions, and refused to live in fear. Personally, I would put this as the difference in percentage between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans will generally be more of the Protestant Christian persuasion than Democrats, according to a Pew Research study, by about 20 percentage points different. But so many people, Christian or not, did choose to listen to the alleged experts. They did choose to follow the dictates of the elected leaders. They did hang on every word of the talking heads on cable news, and as a result, hunkered down and got lonelier and lonelier. Speaking of the elderly, especially those in nursing homes or assisted living situations, I doubt we'll ever know the actual death toll that loneliness took on that population. So now, to answer the problem that we've created— we're going to give them what amounts to a slightly more personable screen. When the Harvard studies showed that even with all the screens, with all the modes of virtual interaction and contact, young adults substantially increased in loneliness, with half of them not being contacted to find out how they were doing, really doing. How do we think that giving a screen to a lonely elderly person will help them with their loneliness? At best, this is a short-term solution based on nothing more than fascination. Fascination that will quickly fade. And what happens when the tablet crashes? What happens when an update goes poorly? And what happens in two to three years when the tablet is obsolete, running poorly and needs to be replaced? If we're going to create a companion, are we being honest that this companion could die at any time? Case in point, a 35-year-old man in Japan who is termed a fictosexual, a person sexually attracted to a fictional character, back in 2019 married a hologram. Yes, you heard that right. He paid about $15,000 for a wedding to a hologram of an anime character. Now, when you read about him, he has very clear social, emotional issues and so that he'd never be rejected by a real human partner, he felt that this was his best option. Now, three years later, the software that allowed him an artificial intelligence type of communication with his fictional hologram wife has failed, and the support for that software is no longer available. So although he has a life-size doll that he can physically hold, he no longer has a way to communicate with his hologram. He is working on finding some way to be able to communicate with her again soon. And the article I found on this said, and I think this is translated into English as it's, it's a little choppy, but it said, quote, Although the relationship between Akihiko and Hatsune Miko seems strange, we could see them more frequently thanks to the fast-paced development of the metaverse and digital environments. In some countries... Fictional sexuality becomes common since an entire content generation industry revolves around it. But as long as those relationships depend on hardware and software that can become obsolete or depend on upgrades, they will remain short-lived. I mean, even as an introvert, I can't imagine doing this. I also can't imagine being elderly, locked down in my home, scared to leave on fear of death, And having a small talking table lamp and a small tablet being my little buddy. Humans were not designed to be alone. Now we can value our time alone. We can desire periods of alone time. We can endure being alone for a time, but we are designed to interact. From a practical standpoint, the best thing to do is to spend some time together, real time really together. Visiting those that we call the shut-ins, those that are not able to get out and about, used to be easier before the psychological campaign to make everyone suspicious and afraid of everyone else. We may need to be more creative now. Maybe it'll take an education campaign. Maybe it'll take help to get family involved. Or maybe a single specific trusted person can be designated to spend personal time with some of these elderly people. Even more important would be showing people the one who will never leave them. I've been most shocked during the last two years as to how many smart, well read, biblically solid Christians quickly threw out a large chunk of what they knew to be true because of fear. Now, I'm not saying they need to go out and lick doorknobs or drink from a common communion cup or greet each other with a holy kiss, but there was a time not long ago when the Christians were the ones tending to those with the plague. Refusing to run away from those in need. Now, because we're told to be afraid despite the data, we need to sit every other pew, mask up and not shake hands, or just sit at home and, you know, sort of kind of watch the message online. If there is one group of people that need to meet together, that need to interact personally in real, not virtual life, that need not fear death, it's the Christian. As a believer in a sovereign God, If he's decided I die because of COVID, guess what? There ain't nothing I can do about it. That's how I'm going to go. These elderly people don't need a digital assistant. They need human interaction, an end to the fear campaign, and to be told the truth so they can go back to real, normal, prior to any sort of pandemic talk, life. And more than anything, they either need Christ or they need to be reminded of the Christ they worship. Secular humans spending a large chunk of money to create secular solutions that have been proven to be either not effective or negatively effective, with those that know how to use it best, will accomplish nothing. I guarantee that six months down the road, most of these LEQs won't even be turned on or charged up anymore. The fascination and wonder will be gone, the emptiness will be back, and the loneliness will be unchanged. These people need human interaction. And more importantly, they need the love of Christ. If the NY SOFA group truly cared about these elderly people, they wouldn't give them a toy. They'd work with faith-based groups to give them real, human contact. But of course, they can't do that. So, um, maybe we need to. Ten billion dollars. That seems like a decent amount of money, right? I mean, it's not... Elon Musk's $200 billion net worth or anything, but it feels like it would be an okay amount to struggle by on. To get an idea of what that looks like, if you stack $100 bills and compress them as tightly as you can, you'd have a stack about 10 miles high. If you worked a job and made $50,000 per year, getting to keep all of it, so, you know, paid under the table, you'd have to work 200,000 years to get to $10 billion dollars. Going back to our $100 bills, if you laid them end-to-end, they'd stretch 9,690 miles over one-third of the way around the Earth at the equator. It's a lot of money, that's what I'm trying to say. And just a few days ago, we almost flushed that much money down the toilet. Well, either flushed multiple times or used a really big toilet, but you get the idea. And why? Why? Well, because the big, new, beautiful James Webb Space Telescope that was recently shot into space took days and days to acclimate and deploy. Well, it was almost destroyed by a meteoroid impact. Well, not exactly a meteoroid. Found on fizz.org headline, James Webb Telescope Hit by micrometeoroid. So what exactly happened? Well, Most people even remotely familiar with space knows that there is a lot of debris out there. We've had impacts of certain celestial bodies. We've got comets that are breaking apart. We've added satellites, spent rockets, etc. And all of this stuff eventually will likely impact other space debris and further break down into smaller and smaller chunks. Well, although NASA and now others design their spacecraft and other space toys for impacts of debris of certain size, they don't have the ability to track everything or plan for everything. So a few days ago, NASA's brand new bright shiny toy had one of the mirror segments impacted by a micrometeoroid. The concern, of course, is that the telescope would be damaged and not able to fulfill its mission of studying distant planets to determine their origin, evolution, and habitability. Read that as looking for potential life or life-sustaining environments in order to prove not only planetary evolution, but spontaneous life elsewhere in the universe. Fortunately, tests have been conducted, performance has been evaluated, and it's still performing above the design expectations, as it has been since they turned it on, for lack of a better term. Now, impacts with micrometeoroids is expected. It's part of the design to varying degrees of... Everything that's shot into space. So NASA said that they're aware these can happen and they design and model and test for these impacts. And there have been four other recordable impacts on the James Webb thus far that have fallen within the modeling and testing that was done. This one, however, this one was larger. It couldn't be tested and was larger than anything that they had modeled. So how large was this micrometeoroid? Well, okay. You know how big a typical school bus is, right? One of the, uh, the big yellow ones, right? Okay. Then you have the short, stubby ones, those little stubby buses, right? You, you're familiar with those. Okay. So inside of the bus, you got the driver's seat. Okay, now they're always either tan or green, it seems like. I don't know why. And they're, you know, kind of half the size of the regular school bus seat. So, you know, the driver's seat. All right. So you're still with me here, right? So the driver that's sitting in that seat, that driver usually has feet typically covered in, eh, let's just say, tennis shoes. Okay, well, those are still too big. But imagine he or she walked through some wet sand and it's all like clumped on the bottom of the shoe. Now pluck out a grain of that sand, get your grinder out, and make it just a little bit smaller. Just, you know, a little nip off the top, and yeah, that's the size of the micrometeoroid that's causing all the hubbub. Smaller than a grain of sand. So, that seems pretty small. You may be thinking, well, maybe the telescope was a lot smaller than i thought i mean we're doing amazing things with cameras on cell phones maybe the optics that nasa has to work with are just amazing just miniature yeah th- i mean that they're probably amazing but no the mirror segments in question those are fairly large uh it's a hexagon shape that's six sides you know to you and me and it's a little bit over 4.25 feet across from flat to flat so Think of a moderately sized round breakfast table, that sort of thing. And something smaller than a grain of sand was a cause of concern because it was larger than they anticipated and modeled for. So the next question that may enter your mind is, do we make stuff that's that junky? And the answer to that is no, we, we really don't. NASA has designed and made some amazing things, including this telescope, at least it seems as of now. The problem isn't the quality, it's the speed of which particles and equipment or vehicles in space are traveling, and the resultant impact force when those two things meet. You can find many images online of impact damage from micrometeoroids On the various space shuttles over time, the Challenger, while she was still flying, came back in 1983 with a rather substantial pit in the windshield from hitting a paint fleck. So like I said, the problem isn't necessarily the size, it's the impact force. Now, I'm going to pull a decent amount of facts and figures from a book entitled Alien Intrusion by Gary Bates, particularly out of chapter two entitled The Science of Fiction. So the velocity or speed at which we can enter an orbit around Earth is about 17,000 miles per hour. Now, it took the space shuttle about eight minutes to go from launch pad to 17,000 miles per hour, which is about the same amount of time for the current SpaceX rockets. According to NASA, an impact with an approximately one quarter inch paint fleck at 22,000 miles per hour in space is about the same as an impact with a 550 pound object at 60 miles per hour here on Earth. So think of a moderately sized motorcycle at 60 miles per hour. This would explain the damage to the incredibly strong windows of the Challenger from a paint fleck. Now, if it's a 4-inch object, so think approximately the size of a softball, that impact in space at 22,000 miles per hour would be the same energy as about 15 pounds of TNT. That's fairly hefty. I found a website that had a calculator to equate pounds of TNT to basically the blast radius of a bomb. 15 pounds equated to about a 22-foot diameter of total destruction. Okay, so how much stuff is actually out there? Well, there is a theory called the Kessler Syndrome. This basically says that with every bit of junk, every bit of space debris that gets caught in an orbit, whether we put it up there or it's naturally occurring, then collisions amongst themselves occur, causing more but smaller particles. For the purposes of spaceflight or space equipment, fewer but bigger objects would probably be better as those are trackable and generally avoidable. More and smaller particles are still very dangerous, but they're not trackable, and they're not avoidable. The Kessler syndrome says that once this starts, these impacts, it only gets worse. And in about 30 to 40 years, a threshold of critical mass will be reached where a particular orbit will no longer be able to be used. You can still go through the orbit, you just can't stay in the orbit. There are apparently some experts that feel we've reached that point with low Earth orbit already. Now, there's no doubt that we have accelerated our Kessler syndrome around Earth because we've been exploring and dumping for 60 years now. But as comets, asteroids, etc. are captured by the gravitational force of other planets, eventually they would succumb to the same problem. Additionally, we do know that there is debris floating in space, some large that we know about and undoubtedly a lot of very small that we can't track but need to assume exists. In fact, per alien intrusion, the estimate is that there are about 100,000 dust particles per cubic kilometer of space. That's basically a dust particle for every 46 cubic feet, which doesn't sound like much. But at 46 feet, flying through space at 20,000 miles per hour, that would mean a large number of impacts, or a whole lot of swerving on the order of Han Solo in the Millennium Falcon. So... Why this cobbled-together poor man's lesson on space trash, you may be asking. Well, in the news lately, I think as an attempt to distract the American population, we've been hearing a lot about how the government has FINALLY admitted that UFOs are real. Now, gonna burst your bubble here, UFOs are absolutely real, as all that means is there is something in the sky that we're not sure what exactly it is. UFOs have always existed. But the implication and the immediate thought when hearing UFO is uh, the aliens are here at this point in my life. And at this point in my faith, I'd have to absolutely deny the existence of aliens. What are these mysterious flights that we see? What are these claims of alien abduction? Well, I'd say either watch the movie or read the book alien intrusion and then weigh the evidence for yourself. But looking at this scientifically, could there be aliens that have traveled to this planet? Keep in mind, this has to have a large number of assumptions for either of two worldviews. The first worldview, the one I subscribe to, is that God is the creator of all. The creation took place about 6,000 or so years ago, which includes all other planets, galaxies, solar systems, etc., as he made the stars also, according to his word. This would mean that at least one other species or race of beings were created between then and now, and have advanced to the point that they can visit us. So, God can do what he wants. He wouldn't have to tell us about another planet with another race of creation if he doesn't want to. It sets up some theological issues, though. Probably the largest of which is, did Jesus die once for all of us and them? Or did he have to take whatever form they are and die again for them? And if that's the case, what did Paul mean by saying that until now the whole creation has been groaning? Now, I won't go any deeper into that, but there are serious implications of assuming God just created other races of beings elsewhere. From a space travel perspective, science is pretty positive, and I think rightly so, that there isn't any intelligent life on any other planet in our solar system. And I'd add, the evidence of intelligent life on any planet in our solar system, including this one, is waning as we speak. Now this would mean that we'd have to look to other solar systems. The next closest star, thus sun, to us is about 4.2 light years away. That's 23.5 trillion miles. At, say, 27,000 miles per hour, it would take 99,350 years to get there. Now, let's say these aliens got a solid jump on us, and it only took them 1,000 years after creation to get into space, pointed our sun, and set out. So that would give them 5,000 years to get here that would mean they'd have to travel at over 536,000 miles per hour, nearly 20 times faster than we can go currently. And that's assuming that in a 1,000 years, they got into space, created a craft with the ability to sustain flight at that speed, and sustain life on board the ship for 5,000 years. And at that speed, knowing that for 5,000 years, that craft would be bombarded with dust, or larger impacts at 500,000 miles per hour, what kind of damage would it have to have been designed to withstand? And more realistically, if I can use that term very loosely here, is that the craft hasn't been flying for 5,000 years. In fact, it would be much less, meaning that it's approaching the speed of light, which, as we all know from every space science fiction movie, is easily possible. You go into hyperspace or warp speed, or you go right past ludicrous speed into plaid, but the impact force goes up. For example, impacting a pea-sized object at 50% of the speed of light would release 2.2 atomic bombs worth of force. Now again, we all know these alien creatures would build shields, right? Energy shields. But those need to have the equivalent force to withstand the impact. What kind of power would that take? And that impact at that force would, if simply equaled by the shields, it would bring the ship to a stop. And that 100,000 miles per second to zero in a very short distance, uh, you're going to need some really good airbags. So the ship would need to have power to overcome the impacts so that the crew wasn't thrown around, you know, like the ping pong balls in the lottery machine. Are you starting to see the virtual impossibility yet? But Dan, you say, to which I say, don't call me But dan We believe the universe is gazillions of years old. There could have been races evolving for billions of years. We all know that the Big Bang banged bigly about 13.8 billion years ago, and life first sparked on Earth about 4.5 billion years ago. We know these scientific facts. So what if a planet flying around one of those closest suns to us sparked life a billion years sooner? where would humans be in a billion more years well all dead from climate change because of your suv and cow farts but let's say that we solved that imminent heat death thing we'd be very advanced in theory so maybe that's what they did well lengthening out the travel time to tens of thousands of years comes back to the same issue of creating a way to sustainably live that long in a spacecraft of any size which seems impractical, or it means maybe they figured out how to fly much faster while protecting themselves from impending explosive doom, which, okay, maybe, or they found a way to break the laws of physics, which doesn't really work with them, you know, being laws, more like suggestions of physics then, and remember the impact force I stated was for pea-sized objects. If they're flying very fast, a fairly large percentage of the speed of light let's say they would need to avoid the large stuff meaning they'd need to have a way to detect the large stuff far enough out and get the information back to the craft fast enough to take an evasive maneuver and despite what science fiction shows you you can't just drift the back end of a vehicle at 50 percent the speed of light not unless you want everyone on board to look like a bug that just hit the windshield. So, I don't know. Maybe in another billion years, we puny humans would develop all of this. Again, that's only making unbelievable wild assumptions. Just to say that aliens exist and have made it here to apparently, I guess, just just look at us? I mean, take a few and, and, and probe them for some reason. It, it, this just kind of seems... um. Silly and implausible when you when you really kind of break it down and look at it? So no, I, I think I'll stick with the biblical creation and go with the at least plausible and theologically justifiable position of God made everything 6,000 years ago, 1,500 years after that there was a flood, now here we are. We are a unique creation in all of the universe. Not only are there none like us, there are no other beings at all. God created all the stuff we see and don't see in the night sky for our pleasure and use, and ultimately to display His omnipotent power for His glory. And Jesus came to earth to take on the form of His only creation in His image to die once, for all of those who will be saved, was resurrected back to life, ascended to heaven, and is now preparing a place for us. Again, I'd recommend either the book or the movie, or actually I'd recommend both, Alien Intrusion, if you want a very plausible biblical theory as to what to make of these stories of aliens. And I'd recommend turning off the TV, skipping past the parts in the podcast, and ignoring the garbage that's trying to get you to focus on aliens. This is nothing more than a distraction from the stuff going on in our country, from a human standpoint, and a way to get your focus off of God and His Word, from a spiritual standpoint. Now, focus on the true truth. Focus on what you know to be real. Focus on what's important. And stop chasing lights in the sky. Oh, the humanity! I think most of you know where that saying was made famous. It was the black and white, grainy newscast of the 1937 crash of the Hindenburg. The massively large dirigible, a a blimp with a rigid structure, you know, in the balloony part. And now, there were a number of factors that all contributed to that crash and fire and all sorts of conspiracy theories that go along with it. But regardless of what happened, the fact is that it did happen. And that, along with rapidly growing passenger airplane technology, it pretty much shut down the idea of the blimp, or dirigible, being a viable mass commercial passenger transport vehicle. The airplane, of course, was being developed by a variety of private companies, competing to fly the farthest, the fastest, in some cases the highest, and with the largest passenger capacity. The target, although constantly moving due to improvements of technology, was always the same, faster, bigger, farther, more. This is where we got monsters like the Boeing 747 and more recently the Airbus A380. At some point, the concept of max profits were thrown into the mix, so now added to the multifaceted target was efficient. This, more than anything, is what killed off fantastic airplanes like the Concorde. With a relatively small capacity and terrible efficiency, even without the crash in the year 2000, it would have been soon doomed to be nothing but a relic of what used to be sitting in a museum. Those were the days when we researched, experimented, tested, failed, succeeded, and developed technology based on want, based on, as JFK said, quote, we do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. We saw a need, or in some cases, created a need, and created solutions. These solutions were created by people who saw a pathway to fame or fortune, but at the same time, they improved the lives of humanity. Varying degrees. Build a better mouse trap and the world will beat a path to your door. The inventor gains his or her fame and fortune, and the populace gets a better mouse trap. Win win. Now, the only time we see people beating a path to your door is when an angry mob is coming to cancel or shame us, and it usually ends in property damage and or someone getting shot. I digress. Those days, sadly enough, are mostly gone now. Today, we create and do things not because they are easy or hard, but because regulations created by elected and oftentimes unelected bureaucrats have forced us into a corner, so we must find a way to cobble together something that can meet the dubious or downright baseless requirements that are thrust upon us, regardless of actual need or want, and regardless of profit motive. We are literally a society of mice caught in the better trap that was built by our very own government, trying to not get our necks snapped as we do the bidding of our overlords. Now, I know you're wondering why my typically cheery demeanor seems to be lacking in this episode. Well, it's because, as an engineer, I can see the thrill of discovery and invention, the desire to improve the lives of others waning, and a dull, gray world of designing things that fulfill regulatory requirements rapidly engulfing my chosen profession. But don't worry— I'm in no way depressed or suicidal. I'm not thinking of strangling myself with piano wire, then double tapping myself in the back of the head, dragging myself across a parking lot to a dumpster, and erasing the memories of all the security cameras in the area. Not suicidal at all. All that being said, found on CNN.com, headline, this European airline just ordered a fleet of airships. I mean, airships? Are we literally in the 1930s again? Wait. Actually, hold on. Pre-World War II, Great Depression, empty shelves, oh my goodness, we might be in the 1930s again. Okay, different topic for a different day. Focus, focus. So a small airline, Air Nostrum, part of the Iberia International Airline, which has 41 smaller regional-type aircraft, flying mostly in Spain with a small radius of destinations from its base in Valencia, has ordered 10 airlander 10 aircraft to be delivered sometime in 2026 the airlander 10 is made by a uk company called hybrid air vehicles hav and from what i read this appears to be technically a blimp as i believe the uh, huge sack that floats this thing around would lose its shape and mostly collapse if the pressure was relieved in other words i don't believe there's any sort of rigid structure inside the bladders to maintain the shape therefore a blimp. The airship is being designed to carry about 100 people up to 20,000 feet high for 300 to 400 kilometers, which is about 185 to 250 miles, you know, for us normal people, at a top speed of, (laughs) better buckle up, 80 entire miles for every single hour of flight. Now, there are apparently three power plant options according to the HAV website, or at least there will be, four combustion engines, or a hybrid electric combustion engine configuration, or a fully electric model. According to the CNN site, the blimps that Air Nostrum ordered were electric, but according to the HAV website, the all-electric won't be available until 2030, while the hybrid version will be available in 2025, so most likely Air Nostrum ordered the hybrid versions. When looking at the Air Nostrum current destination list, if we flew flights out of the base of Valencia and used the maximum 250 mile flight range, they could fly 18 of their current 61 routes with this blimp. And remember, that's at 80 miles per hour max. So if you look at one of the longest potential routes, Valencia to Granada, which is nearly 250 miles as the crow flies, probably well over 1,000 miles as the dodo flies, stupid bird, it would take about three hours in the air at the max speed, assuming it can reach max distance, maintaining max speed, which I doubt in order to get there. Looking online, I found a flight that had a stop and 45-minute layover, total of three hours gate to gate. A straight shot would take probably an hour or less in the air in about any regional jet. In fact, one of Air Nostrum's jets, the Bombardier CRJ-1000, can seat 100 people and fly about 7 times faster than the blimp, so a straight shot would be well under an hour, probably never reaching top speed, definitely never reaching its ceiling. If I drove from Valencia to Granada, according to Google Maps, it would take me about 5 hours, but I can leave when I want, arrive when I arrive, stop if I want, Don't have to check in, don't have to get my bag, don't have to rent a car or arrange a ride. Trust me, five hours? That's less than the amount of time this thing would take when you total it all up. CNN gives some potential future routes for the blimp, such as Seattle to Vancouver. Well, okay, that's about 145 miles and three hours by car, probably an hour and a half at max speed by blimp. But again, are you really going to save any time? One pro that this has, and one thing I could see this being used for, would be unique locations. It doesn't require typical airport structures or runways in order to take off or land, and the passenger compartment is shown as basically walls and in some spots floors of glass. This could be a really neat, touristy kind of experience. But to replace commuter jets and routes, (laughs) I don't think so. let's put your mind at ease, at least on one topic. The buoyancy of this blimp is not accomplished by the Hindenburg, oh, the humanity, hydrogen. This is done using helium, about 1.3 million cubic feet of helium per blimp. Now, many of us have heard that helium is running out. As of now, we can't create it. We can just find it. And when it's gone, it's gone. According to science.howstuffworks.com, and you can read the entire article, the link is in the notes, Helium is a byproduct of radioactive decay, atomic processes, and an extraction of the gas that gets mixed with natural gas and oil, which they extract out. As of now, the projected helium supply at our current rate of usage is about 50 years. Of course, the experts also say that we only have about 50 years of oil left on the planet. They've been saying that for a long, long time, and they keep discovering more. I'm guessing that the two numbers work together as when the oil and natural gas run out, so does the trapped helium. HAV says that although their blimps use a lot of helium, they could run 600 of their air landers and still only account for about 1% of the annual helium consumption. So let's accept the premise that oil, natural gas, and helium are running out. I think it's understood that as oil runs out, it gets harder and harder to get to the last remaining deposits in a well. The harder it is to extract the oil, gas, and helium, the more costly it'll become. Add to that the fact that there are many, many uses for helium right now that are critical in the manufacturing, cryogenic, and medical fields, as well as many others, that there is literally no substitute for. So the price is whatever the price is set at by the very few extractors and buyers. And as we run out... Those with the greatest need with the crucial need will be prioritized over the others. Looking at USGS.gov, we can see that the price of helium has apparently doubled from 1999 to 2021, which is outpacing inflation, although inflation is working hard to overtake everything. The point is, how much will it cost to create these blimps as the price for helium goes up and up? Let's keep moving, but keep the fact that we extract helium from oil and natural gas in the back of your mind. We'll come back to that. The real selling point, the reason Air Nostrum wants to buy these things, the reason why HAV is creating these things is not because there was a need. Nobody was banging down the doors of Boeing or Bombardier or Cessna demanding a blimp. There are no billionaires flipping a coin between a Gulf Stream and a blimp not for any practical use, at least, this entire industry is being shoehorned into somewhere that nobody really wants it because, drumroll, climate change, or more accurately, CO2 regulations that have been voted in and are now being imposed on all of us. The president of Air Nostrum, Carlos Bertomeo, said that they're going this route to help meet the European Union fit for 55 goals. This is a push to cut emissions by a minimum of 55% by 2030. According to HAV, the standard internal combustion engine airlander will reduce CO2 consumption by 75%. The hybrid will cut it by 90% and the fully electric will cut it by 100%. Truly a zero emission form of transportation, if you don't count emissions of the power plants generating electricity. I'm just kidding. By 2030, all electricity will be made by wind, solar, unicorn farts, and happy thoughts, so we're all good there too. Of course, the all-electric version isn't even under design. From what I can find, there's some research into motors, but that's not very advanced along either. I guess I'd be curious how much of the available payload will be used by batteries, and then how long will it take to recharge the batteries? The CRJ-1000 has a fuel capacity of just under 3,000 gallons. At a fuel truck to jet rate of on the low side 300 gallons per minute, that means it would take about 10 minutes for the plane to be refueled fully and ready to go. I'm going to just hazard a guess that after 10 minutes of supercharging, the air lander is going to still be a grounded lander, and that's every single trip. Pilots actually calculate how much fuel they'll need for their flight. They put in correction factors for holding, for alternate airports, and a buffer beyond that. I'd say that it's likely rare that you step on an airplane, or in the case of my mom, see an airplane on TV, where the tanks are actually full. But with such a relatively short range for the airlander, I would have to logically conclude that they want to charge the batteries fully every time. I know the anxiety I feel when I see my phone is sitting at 50% during the day. I don't want to start my day at 50%. Finally, remember how I told you that we get helium from gas and oil? Well, we're wanting to rid ourselves of oil and gas usage, right? And theoretically, if we're just using it for lubrication and not, you know, the fueling of all forms of transport, The making of textiles, the making of plastics, and pretty much everything you use all day every day, we can produce plant, animal, or synthetic based lubricants. So what if we get rid of the oil usage and get rid of the need for oil extraction? What happens to the helium extraction? What happens to the available helium? What happens to the blimp? Again, Grounded Lander. Now I know. I'm talking a perfect world regarding direct flights for commercial aircraft, and that's not the real-world case, but the point is still valid. This blimp, although I'd love to ride in it, is a novelty. The only way this becomes a reality is if we take a massive step, eh, a leap, well, a lunge, backward in modernization. Mark my words, if this type of transport becomes how we do it, we have royally screwed up. The bigger picture is, why are we doing this? Why wasn't this a focus 50 years ago, 70 years ago? I'd argue that we did not live in fear back then. Yes, there have always been fears and worries, scientists telling us that we're all doomed, crazed people on the corner of the street shouting the end of the world is at hand, but we didn't live our lives in a constant state of fear. In the King James Version of the Bible, the phrases, fear not and do not be afraid, are said 76 times, and there are a variety of other ways the same message was conveyed. We are not to live based on fear. We are not to make decisions based on fear. You lose a varying amount of logical reasoning skills when you allow fear to creep into the decision-making, but that's what we're doing. Regardless of if global warming or climate change are my personal favorite, whether weirding is a real thing or not, regardless of the causes, forcing the manufacture of, the creation of, and the adoption of technologies that aren't ready to be used on a wide scale will only lead to disaster. The all-electric and lower-carbon solutions are not ready for prime time. They're just not. The battery technology isn't ready. The sustainable sources aren't ready. The market and the consumers aren't ready. This is all built on a false premise using bad science pushed by power-hungry actors via psychological manipulation utilizing fear as the catalyst. But we're being told that we must be afraid. We will all die. The planet will be destroyed if we don't do something. Again, fear not. There's a reason that fear not was uttered so many times. God is sovereign, meaning his plans will not be undone, altered, or even delayed one millisecond. However, in a worldview from the human point of view, what would have happened if Moses had run in fear from God speaking out of the burning bush? What would have happened if Mary had protested against being the mother of Jesus because of fear? We saw the mess that Jonah made out of fear. What if Noah had the same fear, a fear of man, and decided not to look foolish and be chastised for making a huge floating box? Look at the last two years, the so-called pandemic. Whatever your view on all aspects of the last two years, no honest individual could argue that fear didn't play a massive part in the actions taken by many, if not most, people. We would have never predicted that so many people would willingly do whatever they were told by a government and by the big evil drug manufacturers that they never trusted before the virus. The psychological effect of fear, at least to me, as someone that refused to play the game, was fascinating, terrifying, but fascinating to watch. What's more, if you consider the fact that we are made in the image of God, as God is not a physical being, rather spirit, that image means we are a very distorted or dim version of God's being, his character. When thinking of the aspect of emotions, God has righteous anger. We have anger that's usually sinful, sometimes righteous. God has joy. We have happiness, which is fickle, and joy when secure in Christ. God loves with a perfect love. We have totally screwed this one up, but we also love. And we could go on. Do you realize that God doesn't have fear? In fact, the only fear that God could ordain but still could never experience would be a fear of Him. Now, Not all fear is bad, though. In a sinful world, it's good to have fear of certain unsafe situations. It's good to have fear of authorities if you're planning on breaking the law. So God gave us the emotion of fear for a purpose. But as humans do, and as sin did, the emotion of fear is now distorted. But the idea of fear of the unknown, of the future, of conceptual ideas, including man-caused destruction of the planet, is nothing but having a low view of God and his sovereignty when you boil it down. Why didn't we have this type or level of fear 200 years ago, 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, as we industrialized and powered our way to the most prosperous, powerful nation in the world, arguably in all of history? I maintain that the farther we remove ourselves from God, the more fear we'll have in every area, and the more fear-based poor decisions we'll make, likely causing more fear from the poor results of the poor decisions. When you add in a driving force of those that care only about power, money, and control, well, altogether you get what we have, a waning superpower, a nation in decline, a focus on the wrong things, authoritarianism, and a slide down the slippery slope of sin, depravity, and perversion. And as we can see, this isn't just the U.S., this is around the entire world, and among all of these fears, based on a low view of God, is the fear that man can destroy the creation of God despite knowing that this planet will not be destroyed until God does it, prior to remaking it perfect again for his children. We don't have the ability to alter the plan and purpose of God. In a world that wasn't frantically, I'd argue sinfully, afraid of the fluctuations of the temperature of the earth, rather trusting in God's sustaining power, how better could we address the needs of humanity on this planet? How better could we spend our money? What focus could so many in science turn to? So bringing this back to a personal level, fear not. Before allowing yourself to be afraid of what you hear in the news, of what you believe to be true, of what you think may happen, take every thought, every fear captive. Test it against what you know to be true. And then act with purpose rather than react with fearfulness. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard greatly appreciate a like a comment and a review if you're so inclined as you likely already know it all helps with the algorithms don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops and finally if you found this podcast useful or entertaining share it with your friends your enemies your in-laws your outlaws if you want to reach me you can do so at lc at outlook.com or increasingly i'll be using at lc podcast on getter Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.